0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and our guest Sandia Lynch. Hello Andrew. Hi Simon. And hello Sandia.
1: Hello Simon. Hello to you both.
0: And before we get going, I just want to say thank you to Amy Jasek, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago on episode 13. Um, Really enjoyed that show. And um, and it was, yeah, you know, it was. It, it wasn't the show we expected it to be either, because we we decided let's ha- let's have a, a show about photography and uh, not not uh, about gear. And, and somehow we we managed to turn it into a gear show. So I'm not entirely sure how we managed that, but it was uh, it was a good, it was a great show all the all the same. And uh, it was also um, it was as if like there were two guests on that show because there was <laughs> there was Amy and then there was Amy Amy's dad sort of lurking in the background all the time.
2: There's a bit of a clamour um online. I say that as though it's something bigger <laughs> than it really is, to get Amy's dad on the show. Um we'll see. Yeah. So uh Amy, please please come back and bring bring your father with you. Um
0: so um that's that's it for uh, for that part. And I think um let's let's talk about what we've been up to uh, this week. So And Andrew, uh, you've been
2: caravanning, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, we had a week away in Shropshire, which is lovely. And uh, I met Clive, I think his name is Mister Cool Retro, on his market stall in Ludlow. I think his name's Clive. It's either Clive or Simon. We, I don't think we we couldn't agree on it, could we? When I when I was chatting to you, yeah. But anyway, um, and I didn't buy anything. I was very proud of myself, and I spent the week exposing X-ray film in a pinhole camera. But it was large format, so that's all valid, isn't it? I was going to say you did you did send me a text. Did I? Um,
0: about well, either like the text or a little email, while while you're out, and uh, and you were talking about this 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 camera that was yeah, yeah it was a Besser six four five. Yeah, I think it,
2: I think it was referred to as a baby Besser. It was mm. it was just after the end of World War Two when a, a a British serviceman brought it back from Germany, and it had uh, in a little white envelope. It had some battered instructions and a little uh, sort of import tax certificate that he had to pay the. German authorities, I think, or the British authorities—I'm not sure. Anyway, it's in lovely condition. The, the six-four-five folding camera, very cute. Uh, got a little yellow um, filter that swings out of the way. And research I've seen says that often they get broken.
1: They do. I I once had one.
2: Yep. Well, I didn't buy it. He, Mister Cool Retro, because Simon or Clive. He, uh, he, he wanted sixty-five pounds for it, and I thought that was very fair. And it was it was in beautiful condition. You know, the bellows seemed sound. There was no scuffs on it. The shutter speeds were okay down to you know the really slow ones. They'd need a, just a bit of exercising or um, a bit of love and attention. But I thought, how many folding cameras do I need? The only thing, if it had been another six by six camera, definitely no. But as it was six four five, I was really, really tempted. Well, you could you could tell by you know, these these messages that you were
0: sending because you started <laughs> off by saying you, know, you mentioned this camera and, and, and immediately said I don't really need it uh, then what, and then you proceeded to like list all these features that you've just listed listed
2: there now so I know you, were, you had, I've got to say that was incredible self control there it was yeah but the thing is i I've, I've I'd also been speaking and this is a bit of a shout out I'd also been speaking to John Boyce who is Mr. Odyssey Devere down in Brighton and Odyssey, of course, Od- Devere, sorry, make uh, well known for their large format enlargers and Odyssey Devere still make digital large format enlargers and they sell refurbished um, 504 bench mount enlargers and floor standing enlargers. And um, uh, I'm going to transport my Mark three dichromat bench Standing large format enlarger down to brighton as soon as john is back from uh, his holidays and they can give it a good clean and lube up the bits that need lubing up and you know make sure it's in alignment and then i go and collect it again and it won't cost me an arm and a leg so i'm excited about that so i was conscious that i've got money to spend and i'd rather spend it on things like darkroom things than more cameras because I don't need more cameras. As cute as it was, you've just confused. Well, I, it's not. It's not hard to, for me to get confused.
0: But you've just said a, a, a digital five by four enlarger.
2: Yeah, you have to go on their website. Yeah, they're making digital enlargers with digital heads. I I've never really looked into it because I just sort of switch off when I see the word digital. But yeah, yeah
0: but I'm, I'm just. But what, what
2: Odyssey what, Devere? I don't know. Don't I don't know? I don't know. <laughs> Forget I said it, but I think it... You go on the website and look. I might be talking absolute bollocks, well, but we, we, I, don't, I don't think so. Well, well, Sandeo, San you you know everything.
0: Um, <laughs> could, could you ex- explain what this digital enlarger does?
1: I don't know, because it's something I heard about a long time ago, and I never looked into it, because as, as Andrew just said, you know, uh, as soon as you hear the word digital, sometimes your mind switches off. I... I I would not need a digital enlarger, but I believe they do exist. They uh, do. Not quite on the unicorn level. It's something <laughs> I've heard of, but never looked into. Ah, Well, go to
2: Odyssey. Those are folks out there. Spend a, min- a minute and look up Odyssey Devere. It's an interesting site because they've got some pictures of some nice Mark IV film um, enlargers. And they talk about the digital enlargers. Now, you're, you're both of you are making me doubt myself now, so... I'm saying no more. <laughs>
0: well, I, well, I, I just wonder if it's. I mean, I, I don't really understand how the print in photo labs um, now, but uh, and it, it, I'm, ju- I'm just wondering if it's if it's just a matter of, like the the process is effectively the same, um, but you're just it's just projecting a digital image instead of projecting a, uh, an analog image through it through a negative onto onto
2: paper. Yeah, I'll go and I will, I'll go and look at it and report back for the next show. <sighs> Make a note in my notebook.
1: <laughs>
2: Obviously, De Beer, digital.
1: But like uh, you started the week, Andrew, by saying that uh, caravanning was the theme of your week, but you didn't <laughs> continue on that.
2: Didn't, well, I don't want to bore people. I, I take enough stick for caravanning <laughs> both on this podcast and another one. But, um,
1: but were you shooting very much?
2: Yeah, I was using a large format pinhole camera courtesy of Mike Walker. Mm. And I was shooting. I did some experiments actually, because I'd, I'd recently thank you, Mike for supplying me with a 110 millimeter cone for the camera. That's the beauty of this camera. Although it's a fairly simple camera that Mike makes, you know, not, not you you can change the, the cone. So it comes with a 72 millimeter cone and you can, just switch out and put in a 110 or a 150 to give a sort of normal, inverted commas, Mm. perspective. And uh, so I I set the camera up. We were at the campsite, and there was some farm machinery in the corner of the field we were camping in. And I set the the tripod up and put the wide cone on the 72mm, and I used that quite a bit, so I had a fair feel of what the image was going to look like. And then from the same position, then I just swapped out the cones and replaced it with the 110, which would be a moderate wide angle, I guess, on 4.5.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, exposed one from the same position as well, because that was kind of interesting. And as we know, uh, perspective remains the same. It's just- it's just that I was zooming in on the on the scene a little bit more, and I was surprised at how much I zoomed in because I exposed those X-ray, I developed those X-ray films last night in uh, dilute rhodanol one to one hundred for six minutes, turning the turning the sheet film over once a minute and not agitating because this X-ray film has an emulsion on both sides. And by and large, got away with negatives that weren't scratched. Uh, I did get one scratch on one negative, but the interesting thing was how the um, how, how it zoomed in quite quite a lot, really more than I was envisaging in my head for this sort of moderate wide-angle lens. So that was interesting. Well, staying with the caravan theme, <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you have you, <sighs>
2: you you not drilled a hole in the door of your caravan
1: to, to
0: no, create
2: a camera obscura? No, I, no, I couldn't get away with that. I have got a rather dark um, the room at the, the small room at the end where the shower and the toilet is is rather dark. I keep iron that up. Really, what I need to do is um, go away by myself for mm, two months touring Scotland with a camera and some developing equipment, and then I can turn the back end into a uh, uh, a little mobile dark room. That's what I fancy. I'd, I'd buy myself a small. A small, um, perhaps one of those. What were they? Z- Zenit enlargers. That I think Rachel has one. The hmm. Zenit enlarger that folds into a suitcase. I've always fancied one of those. Hmm. And then you can just, I can just whip it out in my shower room and uh, <laughs> and develop pictures. But probably only thirty-five mil. That's a problem. So, or I could use the lab box,
1: which you're currently
2: oh.
0: using as a stand for your
2: mic. I am, yeah. Or do a lot of contact printing. Or do a lot of contact printing. Uh, The idea of traipsing around the countryside by myself with a couple of cameras, a stack of film and some red wine, sounds lovely. Julie doesn't listen to this podcast, so she has no idea. It's useful to have a wife with you because they do come in handy for a bit of washing up and stuff. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um so you see you look you you the trouble is you you give me free reign to start talking about these things and then you you just let me jump into the holes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so is would that would that sum up your
2: week? Um well since the last since we spoke oh, to Amy two weeks, is
0: not it actually? Yeah.
2: Yeah, did I do anything more photograph? No, I was painting sheds in the any spare time I had. Okay. Oh. Let's let's find out what Sunday has been up to. So,
0: last couple of weeks, um, what have you been, What have you been doing, Sunday?
1: The last couple of weeks, well, I have actually been using my cameras. I have not used the large format for quite a long time, uh, apart from pinhole. But I broke out a bit, and I I took um, my little Noretta Rail camera, which was specifically made for its one three five Tessar lens. I took that up onto the mountainside uh, to take some photographs of the river because I've actually been doing that quite a bit in the last month, uh, taking shots of along the course of the River Towy in South Wales. And <clears throat> the first time, the first shots I, I took, it, it was literally just a test shot of a new camera that I'd made. And I thought, It's such a wonderful environment. You're down at the waterside, You're framed by trees on both sides. And it's like a microclimate. It it felt very, very warm and very comfortable. So I thought, I will try this again. So I I did. I've been to several places along the river with several different cameras. But last week, I went up near the source of the river. So it's open mountainside. And the river is reduced to being just a stream running over rocks. And so I was able to take some some shots up there. And the, the rail camera was interesting because it's something you could almost hand hold. But I had my mini tripod there with me. So I took a, a shot, which was about one-tenth of a second, I think. And one-tenth of a second over running water is perfect, really, to get... A nice crisp shot of the um of the flow. It's not all reduced to a cloud of silky mist that you would have with a pinhole shot, but you are capturing something of the speed and energy of the water at um one tenth of a second. And this was on, if I'm not mistaken, it was on uh we we photo n p fourteen which is a twenty five a s a film which is probably ten years out of date but it's a very silver rich film or it was if it's not still in production and so the the depth of of contrast is 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 really quite pleasing it's it's a good film to use um so i had fun with that and uh of course, uh, as I was going up there with the car, that wasn't the only camera I took. I also had a, a couple of uh, fixed pinhole cameras in four by five. Um, one was a extremely wide one. It's 45 millimeter pin film distance. And the other one is a very long one, much longer than most people use. It was 200 millimeter on four by five. So it really you know, picked up a small detailed area. Um and again it, it was it was a pleasure to use, though the one discovery I made was that forty-five millimeters on four by five film is actually much too wide for me. I don't like it very much, so I'm going to lengthen that. It's cam-
2: almost almost fisheye, isn't it? I mean that's
1: it, it is. It's yeah. uh you're not quite shooting over your shoulder. But it's it's very very wide. Uh, effectively, I think it's equivalent to let me just check this. Uh, equivalent to about um, twelve millimeter lens on mm-hmm. thirty five millimeter. So mm-hmm. you know it is extremely wide. Whereas I've got another one which is fifty five on four by five, and that is much more pleasing. It's 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 impressive because what is in front of you rises up towards you and and that's one of the nice things about doing close-up pinholes um but without um the the far corners going wildly out of uh, proportion so i'm going to put an extra 10 millimeter spacer into that camera so it's a little bit longer
0: I i was just going to say without without just. Turning into the the lensless podcast, I think it, nothing if, wrong with that. Mate. <laughs> there's, uh, I think it's, it's it's I think it's worth just exploring a little bit more detail about why, uh, about how you're affecting the the angle of view um, with with the pinhole, and also you know, and, and what in other words, what distance away from the from the film has to play in that, and also I think it's just worth also touching on what uh, the effect of the size of the pinhole. Um, and how that depends on how close you are to the film and what's, what might be optimum or not, if that's possible to do that relatively quickly.
1: Well, I use a table, which I found in a book, and I've always used the same table. Uh, there's a book called Adventures with Pinhole and Homemade Cameras that came out 20 years ago, I suppose, by John Evans. Yeah, and got it. a very simple table in that outlines what the optimal pinhole sizes for a given pin film distance and I I stick with that now within uh, a tenth of a millimeter either way it's not going to make a huge difference so in my case that I was just talking about the 45 millimeter I've got a 0.25 pinhole on that Um, going up to 55 0.25 0.25 is still perfectly good for that um, that uh, length of, of of camera, so that isn't a problem. If you go much further away from the optimal pinhole size, you do start to get problems: muddy images or your image is too dark. Does that encapsulate?
0: It does. It it does. And the other the other part is the the distance away from well the, this this pin film distance, which is a new a new phrase to me, but I understand
1: yes, yeah. it. Invented it.
2: We we refer to it as focal length, but then we get told off.
1: Yes. <laughs> so it needed a new term. I mean, if if I say the focal length of the pinhole camera is forty five millimeters, I could get shouted down by somebody else. And I'm just to avoid that. I thought, well, it needs a new word. It is a pin film distance.
0: Well, it, it makes perfect sense. And the 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 other part to that is the, fir- the Well, the closer the pinhole is to the film, the wider the uh, the angle of view is. Is that that's that's Absolutely.
1: correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And which is why, in fact, a two hundred millimeter length of pinhole camera um, does take a very, if you like crop view of a scene but also of course it increases uh you you need to have a larger pinhole and so for that one i've got a 0.5 millimeter pinhole and in turn the length of exposure will be greater as well all little things that need to be taken into consideration
2: that's the beauty of um so I've got these two cones that from Mike Walker's Harman Titan camera, and fortunately they're both supported by the pinhole assist app. So I can put in the cone length and the and the film type, yeah, and it takes into account the what we might call a bit of loss of light due to bellows factor, I suppose. Yes. Um, yeah. But also Simon, you were talking about the this uh, effect of putting the pinhole camera quite close to things and because nothing's in focus, but everything kind of is. I notice with, with the, a lot of the commercial pinhole cameras, like James Gurin makes reality. So subtle pinhole cameras and Todd Slemmer makes them. They use, um, I think both of those guys Well, certainly, uh, certainly James does use laser cut pinholes and they are when, when you put something, particularly something metallic and shiny about an inch away you could think you're looking at a lensed image. I mean, it's that sharp uh, and their, and their optimal sharpness, those laser drilled pinholes Absolutely. Are, are just like an inch in front of the camera. It's amazing. I've got a picture of a, of a, a fork on a kitchen table and you'd think, you'd think it's taken with a, a lens camera with a good center sharpness. The edges are a bit crap, but, and then it just falls away gently. The sharpness falls away gently, but it's, you wouldn't think that it's a a, a pinhole camera. It's remarkable. Mm. And so uh, because of that effect, a lot of pinhole photographers, whether they're using large format or, or smaller, would tend to go for those sort of images. We were, um, sorry to dominate this show with lensless stuff, mm. but we were talking just a few days ago, Corey and I, with um, uh, Mark Pimlott, who uses a zero-image f- um, pinhole camera, but he takes everything uh, back from a step back, so he's 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 composing almost classically, and 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 you don't get that distortion. But they're just beautiful pinhole images. So it, you can, with a pinhole camera, depending on how you position it to the subject, you can, you can either choose to exaggerate um, perspective or not.
1: Indeed, uh, just coming back to re- reference the painting that was. Mentioned a while back, it's always said that painting is an additive art, insofar as you you, you can paint it as you wish mm. your, your imagination as well as what you see in front of you. Whereas photography has been called a subtractive art, in that you attempt to remove anything that is not a part of your central message, uh, the your your own subject of the photo. So. There are two things there. One is getting close makes your primary subject predominant and prominent within the image. But also the fact of using pinhole does allow this fall off towards the corners of blurring and darkening to the point of getting a vignette if you should want one. I'm not keen on vignette in pinhole myself, but some people are. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a pause there. So that, that was—you that was... can edit that out. So no, much. no, I'm, I'm not letting it out. That's, that. That's that's just really, you know, It's 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 quite, um, you know, it's very thought provoking what you just
2: said there, especially the bit about know yeah, additive versus subtractive. Well, um, it came into I've been while I've been talking to while well, I've been listening mainly to you guys and talking a bit. I've been going back through my Twitter feed, looking in desperation for a, a tweet that I know uh steve Starr, Stig sticker the dump commented on and he doesn't listen to this show so he's not going to help me uh and he but he commented on a on a tweet that was shared by somebody else and it was a painting of a scene I mean, it was a street scene so you've got uh points of recession going into the distance with buildings g- getting sort of smaller and then you've got people in the foreground in on the road it was probably something from the 1900s And then there's a photograph, and I can't recall if the photograph was equally as old or it's a modern day version. But it's very very similar, and there are again people in it. But the painter has clearly played with the relative sizes of objects within his painting because he can. So the lens has rendered the scene with the people, because it's quite a moderately wide angle lens, I think. So the people appear quite a long way away and quite small, whereas in this uh, the painting is much the same scene, but the people are bigger in relative relative to where they are in the photograph.
1: What and so period the, was that painting? I don't but, know. I can't find the tweet. <laughs> uh, but roughly speaking, was it late nineteenth century? Probably. Well, if it was influenced by the impressionists, the impressionist painters, in particular, someone like Degas, was hugely influenced by what he saw as photography and so some of his street paintings have figures walking into the frame but they're cut off and so you know you have a figure with his sort of elbow and shoulder Mm. and that's a very
2: photographic thing isn't it we think Mm. of that as a very photographic thing
1: it is yes yeah
2: painters painters picked up on that did they sorry Some painters picked up on, they were influenced, funnily enough, by photography. By photography,
1: were. yes, yeah.
2: Because we think about early pictorialist movements in photography being in, influenced by uh, constable-style yeah. paintings, don't we? You know, Trying to compete with uh, uh, painting as photography was trying to find its feet and define itself as an independent art form.
1: And painting was effectively in the same period trying to renew itself, rebuild itself, and was drawing from uh, the modern images that were coming out of out of photography, particularly towards the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, which was Degas' period. Now his, his street paintings are interesting from a photographic perspective.
2: Degas.
1: Degas. Yes.
2: Okay. I mean, there, 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 I'm scribbling notes.
0: Yeah, there, there are certainly um, modern uh, painters that use photographs, um, photography, to actually take the scene, and then they actually paint.
1: Uh, oh, pictures you, at, at home. Yeah. There. Yes. Yeah.
2: So quite a few <laughs> successful ones do that. Um, the, um, maybe Sandeha, you you mentioned your Netara net. Nereta, Neretta rail four five yes. and uh, i'm saying because uh, you shared some f- pictures of this between me and simon so it'd be useful perhaps you can share a picture of the camera you were down by the river with um to the facebook group so is this a camera you you built yourself this little rail mm-hmm. camera
1: yes yeah. yeah, so all these ones that i'm i've used in the past two weeks all four of them i've built myself yes
2: so this is um basically a frame with a bellows and your lens and it and the and the front s- standard is like a little horseshoey thing with a which fitted to the one end of it's the rail what is it
1: it's one of those mini ball joints that people use for ah. for, for lighting or it's very uh, ingenious yeah or even for holding small cameras you you, you've, oh. you've
2: got the you've got the you've got the knack of being able to visualised materials and how they might be used and when you look at this camera in this photograph you think well actually that's really simple you know wh- why couldn't I think of anything like that and the fact is I just
1: couldn't <laughs> It's an issue, one of the first things I see is how things fit together. Yeah. Now just just as a slight aside to that and it's large format because it's actually 8 by 10 I saw, I think it was James Guerin took some 8 by 10 x-ray film of some large mechanical creatures mammoths or something
2: yes that's right he shared them just uh, recently didn't he
1: now my first thought when i read his paragraph and i saw the images i thought ah eight by ten um seeing x-ray well x-ray film is as strange to me as say a paper negative i haven't used both um so they were sort of equal value to me. And I thought, well, X-ray film is one thing. Paper negative is another thing. Eight by 10, I don't have. So what's my next question? Ah, plywood. Yes, have I got the plywood? Now, I'm looking at his photograph and I'm thinking about plywood. (laughs) You see, what point? That's a little bit how I respond to uh, stimuli. I'm thinking, well, how will these things fit together? And so two weeks later, I had a, an 8x10 um, cone camera made largely of plywood.
2: I think yeah. I've seen it. Is that the one you had when I met you a few weeks ago? It
1: is, yes. That's the Rana. Now, uh, I, I make no apologies <laughs> for my names of uh, these cameras. I, I sort of play with the naming principle, um, which you know, every, everybody uses Uh, one way or another, of naming their cameras. And I should point out that the Naretta simply means, it's derived from Italian, it means little black thing because the original Naretta was black. But then the Naretta rail camera is not black. (laughs) There's a slightly ironic point there because the bellows are actually bronze and the rest of the camera is plain wood and aluminium. Oh, and the critical focusing element, which is a scrap from a telescopic tripod leg. Now, this tripod wasn't working anymore, so I could see the potential of, of controlling my focus just by using a tripod leg in and out uh, to make this new camera. So indeed, yeah, the you've seen a shot of the camera and its uh hmm. in various places and it's very very lightweight for 4x5 and like, I can
2: see you could hand hold it you've got a little uh, viewfinder on the top as well haven't you I
1: do yes indeed
2: is that a um,
1: is that a, a viewfinder
2: from a door viewer
1: uh, mm-hmm. no it's it's actually from uh, early 60s uh, i picked up a a small 35mm that had auxiliary lenses that screwed on to the front. It was made by Taron, I think. And it had one of these viewers for putting into the cold shoe, mm. uh, which gave you the alternative views of the auxiliary lenses that you were putting on the front. Okay. One was wide and one was, was long. And, and so these little viewers are very, very handy. It's, it's guesswork but um, they do work. But of course, the rail camera, the Noretta rail, has a view screen, yeah. so I'm able to focus quite precisely using the view screen, take it out and put the film holder in there.
2: Going back to your use of this little Noretta camera by the the river, uh, yeah. what, what was the river you were saying? I've forgotten.
1: The Towie. Towie, <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of interesting things, and, and um, but I think before we started recording, we mentioned once again, uh, John Blakemore, who I've mentioned oh, yeah. numerous times. And John, John did a series of studies of capturing energy on film. And uh, one, one was uh, with, with his Graflex camera and a standard lens and Ilford FP4. And he explored blurred motion of rivers and didn't like the milky creaminess and he started shooting, developing a sort of optimum time for click, click, click to capture something of the energy and the power of the river, but but also trying to freeze a moment. In, in and then he built up, he built on top of that, and developed it further with a series of built up layered double exposures, multiple exposures with with fairly brief time time exposures, and and so you get you get a you don't you don't get a a blurred motion, but you get a, a very different look to the picture made up of click, 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 click all on top of each other. So lots of little sharp images, all sort of slightly offset to each other because of the multiple image. It's hard for me to explain, but that's, no, I, yeah. I, I, I... Uh, but if you check out John Blakemore's work and probably online, if you type up, type in his energy series, he, he did the same thing with wind, you know, movement through, uh, yeah. trees and rushes and 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 and, and earth and
1: Definitely the water
2: yeah, one and I was struck cuz you mentioned capturing energy and I know it, it perplexed him for such a long time finding some way of capturing the movement in the river without resorting to that sort of blurry creamy stuff
1: I'd need a much heavier tripod than the one I have for for that kind of activity
2: okay
0: well I'm I'm now thinking that um we could talk about what I've been up to, but oh yeah, we haven't gotten to that, have we. <laughs> uh, but but um, uh, what I've been up to is quite relevant to a question that came in because we invited uh, listeners via our Facebook group to um, send in questions, and uh, we'll give them a go at answering them. And, and one of them is uh, to do with macro photography, and that's what I've actually been up to uh, mm. this, this week. So we'll we'll park my week uh until later and i think it's come to that time of the podcast where we should actually introduce our guest <laughs> so um andrew you've you've known sandaya for for a while and you've met him in real life as well so perhaps you could inform our uh listeners and uh, give give a bit of an introduction and then we'll find out a little bit more about sandaya yeah sure
2: well i i've Meeting Sandeja in, in the flesh was was an honour and a privilege. We had a, a lovely evening with uh, Alex Purcell, Mr. Grainy Blur, and we were going to do some photography, but it was late and starting to rain, so we went to a pub instead. Yep. And and if the discussion over the next hour or so is anything like what we had in the pub, then this will be a great podcast. But I think I first came across Sandeha probably... Probably in the film and darkroom user forum, uh, otherwise known as FADU, which is still going. Um, And then I sort of moved away from that, I guess, as Twitter took hold. But I was very much, Sande has been on my radar for a long, long time, mainly as a uh, a thoughtful man, camera builder, uh, uh, polymath, probably. And all-round interesting character. So it was a pleasure to meet him, and I'm hoping now, Sandy, you can tell us, fill in a few blanks because you dropped a few hints when we were out with you, and um, it sounded like you've had quite a colourful life. So um, you know you don't need to share it all if you don't want to, but <laughs> maybe you can uh, do do that thing and share a bit of your life story and how you came to uh, be using cameras and building cameras.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a very long story. I'll spare you any real detail, but I'll, I'll say one interesting thing because it did actually come up with our conversation. Um, a lot of the more interesting photographers you'll meet and talk to are printers, darkroom printers, and I'm definitely not of that breed. I uh, I didn't come across much in the way of photographic prints when I was a kid. But I did come across a lot of negatives and I wondered how on earth these had uh, had come to bear now i used a thirty five mm camera throughout most of my life until um i wandered into a shop and i secondhand shop and i i spotted a, a an old lens a classic lens just sitting there and i as I had just bought my first digital camera i was starting to Compare and contrast what the two media could produce in terms of differences and similarities. So I actually got hold of uh, the negatives that from shots that my dad had taken before the war, and rather than go into the darkroom, I had a scanner. I, I had an early photographic film scanner, and I started um, scanning his work and I was able to look at it really for the first time ever and so that was uh, an interesting stimulus uh, and and an important part of my background I suppose so I'm interested in the methodologies that's for sure I'm interested in the mechanics and working on the principle that if, if two parts will fit together well let's see what those two parts can do is a little bit like nuts and bolts. You know, you, if you've got the right ones, they fit and they will work. So if it, if it should work and it can work, well, hopefully I can make it work. And my explorations into camera modifications and camera building has have all been fueled by that. Well, what if, you know, can we do this? Can, would it work? And not everything does work but you always learn something with every new prototype. Um, So I've enjoyed that aspect of of camera modifications and design and and building. And as I said about one of my cameras, I, I tend to design in three dimensions. I design in 3D because I don't sit at a desk with a blueprint paper. I mean, I will look at the pieces of wood. I will look at the the widths and the lengths, and see how I can make something work. And the Naretta Rail came about as purely a matter of fitting together redundant parts, otherwise redundant parts. Um, And and that's that's one of the, the drivers in everything that I do. And so actually taking photographs, well, quite often it's simply proof of concept. You know, this is how I find out if it works or not. And I might continue to use a good camera for a while, but sooner or later some other idea is going to come up, and i'm going to be building something different to try that out as well um that's probably as much as you would want to know about my my past um or do you or do you need more
2: well i'm uh, i'm I- I'm always willing to listen to people's backstories but you know let's stick with what's relevant to you know how you got into photography and camera building um so the 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 Naretta Nuret, yeah. rail
1: was that yeah. the first large format camera you you built no 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 in fact um I'd the first one was the surveyor the surveyor, surveyor. It was the first large format it was 4 by 5
2: Yes, I'm staring at a picture of that as well. We'll share all these pictures, folks, onto this. Yes,
1: the, indeed, um, yeah. yeah. And there you see it, it was very much a case of building something that was oh, it's like a copy of an ebony. I mean, I yeah. couldn't go out and buy an ebony, but I, I wanted to find out if I had the skills to build something similar. And it was, it was very good.
2: Well, the answer is yes, I think, by looking yeah. at
1: it. Yeah, Um But the Nuretta Rail was built out of scrap parts, Leftovers, if you will. So slightly different principle involved there. When you've got a parts bin that's growing, uh, you look in to see what can be done with that.
2: So you I've said something interesting. Well, Sorry, carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: No, I I've built a few others as well. And in fact, the fourth camera that I was using over the last week was to do some one-to-one shots of flowers, and that is the Surveyor 3. It's the third in the Surveyor series. Oh,
2: I can see the Surveyor 2, which is...
1: uh... Yes, a little flatbed. Yep. Tiny footprint. Yep. And the Surveyor 3 is a rail camera. Um, I've got a
2: picture of that. I was just
0: going to say, if you go on to uh, com and uh, just... And oh, is that what just it on, is? Yeah, and you go on to the, if you go through the menus, you get to his cameras
2: and then large format, and then the, at the top, okay. you see the Surveyor 3. Well, well, I was actually reading the page that Sandeja shared just privately with us called um, Photography and Sculpture, Defocusing the Subject. And Sandeha, I was drawn by what you said a little while ago about it's not so much, the, the images are more proof of concept, I think you said. Yeah. You clearly, reading this article about defocusing the subject, clearly you ended up at large format to satisfy a, yeah. a need to express something in an image. And, yes. and and that's, you know, this story of moving the, this idea of, of focusing in certain areas of soft lenses of defocusing. Yeah, And clearly, you know, people can go away and read the article, but wh- why don't you talk a little bit about that, about um, how you how your vision drew you towards large format and the ability to use those movements, to isolate, uh, tones and, and subjects.
1: They are tied together. Of course, as, as I say, at the beginning of that article, that essay, um, I was prompted by someone saying that you could get these pictorial effects by using software, hmm. you know, some Photoshop filter or other. And I I thought, well, it could be more more interesting to do it in a practical way so that your result is in the negative rather than simply on screen. Uh, But the idea of selective defocus was, in a sense, to uh, create or generate a sense of priority. There's a thing about your average color shot, your picture postcard, is that you look at it to remember the, the place and the scene as almost as though you don't really see the the picture in its postcard format. You are immediately transported to the experience that you had when you visited Venice or, or Rome or Paris or something like that. Um, and I wanted people really to spend more time reading the image itself rather than just looking at the image. So Mm. one way to do that uh, is to play with the focus. And one way of achieving, uh, you might say a distortion, a distortion of focus is to play with the movements. Meniscus lenses also do the same uh, in a similar way to pinhole in that your centre will feel fairly sharp and bright and it darkens towards the corners or it softens towards the corners, as it does with the meniscus. But with the large format camera, you've got movements which allow you to play with your central subject, which might not be in the centre of the image at all. Um, There's a shot of the Meridian Tower that I took with the rail camera um, mm-hmm. on the beach in Swansea, and the sky and the sand and so on, it's all softly out of focus. but Just the top of the tower itself is in sharp f- focus in the top left-hand corner of the image. And only uh, a large format ca- camera movement allows you to create that sort of image. And I just find it more interesting to read a story than just to look at it and pass on quickly to the next.
2: So you're using, you're using one image to encourage people to look deeper into into a picture. This brings me on to another discussion I think we had over a beer, and that's, you know, using images in isolation or in series. Oh, indeed. And yes. so you know. There are thoughts around you know, storytelling. Steve, Stephen Segersby, we had on the show uh, a while back, and he's very much into series of images. Um, what are your thoughts around individuals or series, Sandeha?
1: A poem is as good as its best line, <laughs> and a series hmm. which is might tell a story, it, it may well, it, it may tell a chronological story as as someone did an interesting one recently uh going along an abandoned rail track that was interesting because it was uh, the sense of chronology and also distance traveled in terms of space That was
2: our friend neil piper i think wasn't it yeah, for, his, yeah. for his um for his university work
1: yeah generally speaking the idea of uh a story can can be made up in several ways. And you can think of, for another analogy, what a team is. Take a football team. I mean, if, if everybody played the same position in the same way, it wouldn't be an effective team. It would be something that didn't work. For a football team to work, everybody plays their own role their own exclusive role within the full set. And, you know, I've got nothing against it series. And there's one series that I've been creating over the past six or seven years of cycle riders. But generally speaking, I don't think in, in those terms. I think only in terms of the individual image. And so that has to be a good one. It has to speak volumes in itself. What's the difference between a series and a collection of images? Well, the bicycle ride is is in a sense a collection of images over time. Um, But even out of those, I can pick out uh, key images which, if seen alone, would render all the other images quite irrelevant. So I have a preference for the individual image because I want the individual image to speak loudly.
2: And there's nothing quite like the large format camera, I suppose, um, to force you to focus on the individual image because you are having to make an effort, aren't you?
1: It does take time. It does take some effort. And there are going to be some losses along the way, yes. I mean, I actually went through my um, large format file uh, a few days ago. I mean, there, there must have been 100 negatives in there, and I needed more space. So I, I simply took out all the failures, probably about 20 negatives uh, gone gone for the bin, because they really weren't – they were worth keeping for a while for the sake of comparison, but in terms of looking back over them, no, they, they were not worth keeping, so they had to go. That's um,
2: interesting, isn't it? I'm I'm trying – Occasionally, I'll bin a negative, but uh, I think if I've bothered to file it and keep it, I'll
1: probably keep
2: it. So it
1: yeah, depends on your initial create more,
2: create you know. more storage.
1: <laughs> yes, creating new storage it was was rather important.
0: I find now, it I find it quite easy to throw my negatives away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: it's lot, largely down to quality, though. So, uh, I, I just want to just drag things back a little bit. Um, mm. and you mentioned a, a photograph in particular uh just before we started talking about a series of photographs uh, and it's been on my screen since and I've, i have to talk about it and that's the uh the shot of the uh tower um at mm. swansea so what, what was the name of the building meridian meridian Merid- tower that's that's it uh, yeah. it's a hotel i think isn't it
1: it's um apartments mainly oh okay uh, though there are some offices there and there's a restaurant up at the top and it is the tallest building in Wales yeah so I mean,
0: I, I, I stayed in Swansea a, a few years ago and I remember walking past it it's quite an impressive building but the the, the photo that you've taken of it is is particularly striking uh, because you can see that you've used uh, movements in in the camera to do that now to start off with I was struggling to work out what you've actually done to to, to create that photograph because Right. Just to describe the, 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 the photograph, um, the tower is obviously vertical, and uh, and it's over on the, the left-hand side of the frame uh, on the third, maybe a little bit to the left of the third, and the, the the tower is in very sharp focus, or at least it all appears to be in sharp focus, and you look at it a little bit more closely, and it's actually only about half of the tower uh, vertically is in sharp focus. Yeah. And at, at first I was thinking, how on earth has he done that? Because it looked like he'd actually lose two movements at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing now you've used some kind of frontal rear tilt and somehow managed to position that tilt halfway up the, well, a third of the way up the, the image. Is that is that a reasonable summation of uh, what, what I'm seeing?
1: It's tilt and swing. Now, in fact, uh, the rail camera has a has only a little bit of tilt on the rear, um, but the ball joint on the front of the rail camera allows full tilt and swing uh, as much as you, you like without obscuring any corners. And the basic principle is if you consider an ordinary large format c- camera where you have regular tilt and fr- swing, Uh, on back and front, you can just take, for for, for starters, the tilt. If you front tilt, if you, you set your camera up as neutral and then you front tilt a little bit, you will find that the sharp focus is just a single line across the middle of your frame such that what is Above the centre line will be out of focus because it's, I suppose, too far. And what is below the centre line will be out of focus because it's too near. So you just have a line of sharp focus by tilting your front.
2: If you, you can use your beer mat, can't you, to illustrate this point?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Just tip
2: it, hold it in front of you, and tip it forward a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, carry on.
1: But. Indeed. So that gives you a line, a line of sharp focus by using just the tilt. If you also use the swing from side to side, uh, that would give you a vertical line of sharp focus. And when you use both together, you get a point of sharp focus.
2: You can see, you can almost imagine a cross, like, yeah. like a crosshair, is the, cross. the way Santé has described it.
1: You need to be quite careful not to lose the first one as you're gaining the, the second, second one.
2: Yeah, that's, that's easily done, isn't
1: it? it? with a little bit of forward and backward movement, which is probably going to be needed, you can engineer your point of sharp focus to whatever corner of the image you want.
2: And are you shooting with your lens fairly wide open because that effect becomes more pronounced, presumably at, you know, say f5.6 and it does at f32
1: indeed yes now to be honest i don't recall i might have it written down somewhere but i don't recall offhand whether it was wide or narrow that building of course was probably 100 meters away from me and i am below because i'm on the level of the beach looking up at it um but your aperture certainly does have an impact on that but the key thing is first to, if you're playing around with it, to try to get your camera in neutral, first of all, so that your front standard and your rear standard are parallel. And then just play with one of them and tilt perhaps forward on the front. And you will see how you have uh, just a line of sharp focus across the center of the image. And then do it the other way. Um, get your camera back to neutral and then introduce some slight swing on the front and you'll see you have a vertical line this time. Then when you do both together, the... Uh, the oh, Where am I? I lost a second. When you do both together, your two lines of focus result in a point of... a single point of... of sharp focus and if you do close down your aperture that point of sharp focus can cover quite a large area and if you open your lens up completely then of course it's going to be extremely narrow depth of field on that point of sharp focus
2: you're with the lens wide open and you're you've got that line of focus either vertically or horizontally if you then stop the lens down to you know, f32 f64 it becomes not necessarily a line but more of a cone as it goes away from the camera so you you're getting this wider area your crosshair becomes wider and it's so probably, pro- probably a point becomes a you know, big a big a bigger circle, a bigger I guess.
1: circle. and in, you know it's standard technique for both landscape photographers and product photographers to introduce some slight front tilt or or, or using the rear, in order to get the foreground as sharp as the far distance while having quite a a wide open shutter and therefore a very fast shutter speed, which is handy, convenient. Um, But you can take that in the opposite way to defocus, selectively defocus the key subject in your image.
0: Well, the the other th- thing of this, beside I'm I'm up I'm up with you where the, where you're saying like you're pushing the front standard forward and you get your horizontal plane of focus around the centre of the image, mm. and the same goes with with the swing that takes you to the centre of the image. What yeah. what I'm what's still not quite clear to me is how you actually take that point of focus from being effectively bang in the middle of the image to taking it up into. Um, it's not quite the top left-hand corner, but you're certainly diagonally from the center uh,
2: going, going to the left and up. You've, you've yeah.
1: You've, yeah. yeah so Shime,
2: uh, it's called the shine principle, Simon.
0: Yeah, but, How
2: many more times do we have to yeah, cover? No, I top?
0: get that, but it, it's a case of, you know, that this point of focus is not, well, it's not central. It's, it's been the, shifted it's up,
1: the, up and left. It's the ability to use both front movement and rear movement. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I keep saying that you know you've got a nice view screen and what you see is what you get. So you have to play it by eye to move that focus up into where you want it to be. And remember, of course, you're looking at everything upside down. So, um, but, would it,
0: but, but, but would it be right in saying that you've you've effectively create your, your your center point of focus and you're using the rear movement to actually diagonally take it to the, to left and up.
1: That's probably correct. Now in the case of that rail camera with no rear swing movement of course I'm simply moving the whole camera on its tripod to one side and then counteracting with additional swing on the front. Which would be the case with many um, uh uh oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cameras well, in metal around. boxes. Sorry? Hello. Technical cameras. Yeah.
2: I think we all need to go on a organise a photo walk with Sandia and, and have a oh, go do. down on the beach and oh, be
1: fun. play
2: that'd around. Be fun. Let's have a workshop on on uh, different different defocusing the image using large format cameras and, and focusing and moving that point of focus around. Great. Or you or you just go out and play with it. I mean, because if you take your front standard and you and you swing it so the right-hand side, if you're standing behind the camera, and you turn it so the right-hand side of the front standard moves away from you, then that's uh, effectively you're you're turning the direction of focus along a diagonal plane, um, like you would do. You would be for this shot of the along the beach. So if you wanted, if Sandia wanted to get his plane of focus from the far left side of the, uh, to the of the Meridian Hotel right to the mountains in the back and he's got the camera straight on, he can just tilt, swing the, the front standards slightly for the right side pushes forward and you manipulate the uh, um, plane of focus along the line of the front of the Meridian Hotel
1: That sounds good
2: So I think you can do it all with front standards Simon really Mm -hmm. but you just need to play with it
0: yeah and i I guess that's really where you want a a nice bright lens yeah and uh, and a bright subject
2: well you can you do it all wide open and on a sunny day you know even if you've got an f8 lens but you know Mm. probably be okay
1: wide open uh, 4.5 the tesla 4.5 and that shot was taken in january early january so the sun was relatively low illuminating the building very well and we also had, because it's winter time we had the dark clouds in the sky which uh, also helped but I wasn't waiting for any golden hour it was it was around midday but it just happened to be in the winter time
0: well I think that uh, well as you may have seen from the, uh, the shows that we do ev- every week uh, the artwork we we feature a photograph from that's gotta be uh, the one, hasn't it? I think that yeah, because it You've got it, space. Yeah, this this will work uh perfectly by throwing LFPP <laughs> down the right hand side and make <laughs> it square. Um so people have a, a at least some, something of a head start as to what earth we're talking about. So they will have actually seen the uh the photo possibly
2: before they've listened to it. So that that, that all should
1: means, help means.
2: Yeah. So guys while um while we've been talking about that you'd have seen I, I sent you on messenger the, the tweet I've been looking for. So thank you, Stig, because I, I messaged Stig while we've been talking, and he tagged me into it. So Dan in Hong Kong, I can't remember what Dan's surname is. Oh.
0: Um, K, according to uh, yeah, yeah, I, K. Uh,
2: we've been Twitter, Twitter. I've never met Dan because he's in Hong Kong. <laughs> Maybe Perry G knows him. Yeah. Um, here's an interesting comparison between the way an artist depicted perspective versus the way a lens does. So to answer the question earlier, which we either had on air or off air, there's a painting from Oxford in 1810, so it's earlier than I thought, and then a photograph from Oxford in 2015, and and the scene has changed remarkably little. Would you agree? Um,
1: Yes, yes. Other than... The building on the right is different. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, isn't it? I think maybe it is. or maybe it's not. I don't know. It's hard maybe to it. say. But the painter has clearly painted the scene as 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 used perspective in a different way. I mean, the people, yeah. Yeah. you know, are, are in the same relative position, are appear anyway are, are a bit bigger in the painting than they do in the in the photograph.
1: Was there any indication of what angle of lens he used for the twenty?
2: 20- uh, I don't. Maybe you have to ask Dan if you if folks yeah. are on. Oh, there's a source here. It's um if I click on it, where does it take you to? This is interesting, isn't it? Oh there we go. So it's taking me to oh, that's way well, helpful.
0: I, I was gonna say while while you're looking for that, you've just mentioned No, it's that. not it's not very helpful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just um Yeah, it, it doesn't give you any technical details.
1: No indeed, yeah. But yes, I mean, painters can play with perspective, uh, but a photographer with um, a large format camera can pretend that they're playing with perspective.
0: So Come on. A lot. <laughs> tell, tell us more.
1: Well, uh, I, I took a, a shot of um, a painter sitting at his easel, I was I was in Bologna one time and he, he used to go out just to sit in the sunshine and have people around him. And he was painting a, a kind of landscape scene with uh, a beach, I think it was, or a little lake, perhaps it was. But what he had in front of him was a public square with people walking around. He was not painting. <laughs> he had his full easel set up, palette brushes and so on. He was not painting what was in front of him. He was painting what he had in his in his head. So, I mean, I just say from that point of view, yes, painters can paint what they look like wherever they are.
2: I think with photography, the eye the eye is a camera lens, so it's 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 projecting a circular inverted image onto your retina, and your brain is making sense of it. Yeah um so the eye sees so if you put your eye at the same level as a camera you ask and and you've got a a normal field of view lens about 48 millimeter angle view with one eye closed that's pretty much what your camera sees uh irrespective of of the length of the lens on it the perspective in the in the picture the relative distances between things and their sizes will be much what you see but you can by, by moving up and down or sorry sandy by moving you can change it of course by moving either moving the camera or or um or, or when you move your eye you know so you move the camera up or down or or you can force an exaggerate perspective by getting a lot closer to something which we touched on with extreme wide angle pinholes yeah yeah
1: well this, sorry, this
0: I was going well I was just going to say this is this is lead into a discussion that we weren't hundred percent sure whether we were going to do this or not um, regarding perspective because uh, in uh, on the last three weeks or so, um, although not this week, uh, the the previous weeks uh, on the classic lenses podcast, <laughs> there's there's been a a rolling discussion about perspective and how different um, film formats, not so much lenses, but how different film formats will affect uh, perspective. And I've been roundly criticised by uh, people for taking the view that if you take a photograph with large format, um, it is somehow different um, from if you take the same photograph from the same position with, uh, with a smaller format. And uh, my mm. argument was that if you're using large format, you're using a, a longer focal length. Um, therefore, you're bringing uh, whatever's in the distance, you're, you're bringing that clo-
2: closer in. And no, you're ma- you're magnifying it in the on the on the two yeah. D representation of it, so it, it yeah. appears to be. But the <laughs> the, the, the point
0: that um, has been made to me very very strongly, and I'm in agreement <laughs> with this. Um, by the way, so please don't write in on on this particular point yeah go on Write uh, in. We'll
2: have some hate mail to Simon.
0: Uh, yeah the, the point point being is if you take a take a photograph and in one location and whether you change your, uh, your lens or your format it it doesn't matter to, in terms of perspective uh, because what you actually see from that particular point is going to be the same irrespective yeah. of what lens or what format that you use yeah. Um, because it's a single point and you know you cannot you can't sort of see around corners but because you're using a, a longer focal length you can only see what you can see from that particular point so my, my the point I was trying to make and I'm, I'm I need to you know I'm pretty much in, in agreement with all the things that I've been told and, uh, and, and and so on and I've 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 taken a view though that if you stand in one location and take a photograph with a large format camera, and then you stand in that location and, and take a f- photograph with a, a a much smaller format camera, but using an equivalent uh, field of view, mm-hmm. I'm saying that, well, it's, my, it's, it's been my belief, which is eroding very quickly, um, that the photograph taken with a smaller format lens will not match up with the one mm-hmm. with the larger format lens. As in, literally if you overlaid the two over so you've got some geometric lines and stuff you know and uh, you've got the photograph one and one can be placed over the other and you can see through i'm i'm suggesting that there will be differences there um and, and uh, i was going to say one one thing that's popped into my head especially looking at these photos and um is that you're going to have dis- more distortion i i suspect with a with a smaller uh white more wider angle lens which you could correct uh, with with large format but i guess i'm not trying to introduce corrections into this
2: well it's the angle i mean it,
1: th- optical aberration is something to take into account with what you've just said simon because lens formulas are now very very complex and the the most modern 35 mm lens of a given format and the equivalent 19th century Um, large format lens, to give an equivalent, would have differences. They wouldn't be differences of perspective, but they would have certainly differences because of the way aberrations stretch or perhaps sometimes compress an image towards the edges or towards the center. And I'm not an expert on this. I don't know a lot about lens design, but one of the reasons I use a single-element meniscus lens is because it encourages that kind of effect of, of distortion as it moves out towards the edges of the frame. A modern 35 millimeter lens will not give you that. But I think what the meniscus lens does do is replicate another difference with the eye. Because when you look at a scene with one eye closed from a fixed position, you still have peripheral vision. And when you look at the through the camera, through the camera lens at the same scene, you no longer have peripheral vision. It's all framed off. Hmm. And I think that affects how our brain processes the visual information.
2: Everyone's sitting here with one eye closed now, aren't you? I bet Simon's doing it. I'm doing it. I'm staring at one of Sandia's pictures of the church, and I'm got an obelisk in front of me, and then I'm looking at my peripheral vision. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I, I it's it's you've in, introduced an. Inter- I've got a rather different images of Sandy here now, and um, something very sharp and bushy is in focus right in front of my. Eyes. Ah. Ah. I'll move on quickly. Oh, there's yeah. another one.
1: Yes, oh, yes better, are, I'm quite proud of those. Meniscus
0: lenses are wonderful. Fantastic. <laughs> that's. Uh, I, I, I think we're here in we we'll, sh- we'll, we'll, we'll share those ones as well. <laughs> Um, I don't think Facebook will quite allow us to actually share those photos if they're, yeah, want, if they're the ones I think you're talking about there.
1: <laughs> uh, if you're looking at the ones that are on my Facebook yeah. uh, um, All right.
2: okay. so they, they haven't had like a little star put over the bushy area, have they?
1: Yeah it, um, they they didn't it's, it's just so unclear that there's anything there hmm. I, I've been banned from Facebook before for one time for 30 days for Wow. Pictures that um, showed too much, but uh, these seem to have come uh, across okay. Yeah.
2: Well, despite her pose, it's it's um,
1: it's a chaste image.
2: Yeah. It's not um, terribly graphic.
1: Well, do do, what do
0: there is that debate, isn't there, uh, on, on Facebook that's been going on about what, what can be shown and what can't be shown and also the difference between um, certain types of photograph and, and art. Yes. And, um, and certainly the, the, the types of photographs you're describing there, that, well, that the we're talking about, are certainly on the artistic scale compared to many other photographs that are out there, which, which I'm sure that Facebook would make
2: disappear very, very quickly. Well, the Indeed. fact that Sandejo has has gone to the effort of using a a single meniscus le, miscus, lens yeah. that he probably I think got from an optician to, or he got it to got it ground or something and Indeed, then mounted yeah. it in something and stuck it on a camera. Well, if you're suffering for your art, that's one way of doing it, isn't it? Indeed, is that, is that correct, Sandejo? Is that what you did with your? Yeah, you went no, to see an optician.
1: It's is made for me. They're thirty millimeter diameter, and uh, each one is a a different. Diopter from the optician's point of view, and therefore from the photographer's point of view, each one is a different focal length. Mm. I've got a 125, a
0: 170, and a 250. I was going to say, uh, uh, Andrew, you've got a meniscus lens with you at the moment, haven't you?
2: Apparently so. Yes, we're looking forward to seeing those photos. <laughs> Just move on and talk about something else.
1: (laughs) Okay. Did we want to discuss um, close focus and macro?
2: You can do. You've got some. I haven't gone to the trouble of asking Facebook listeners to ask questions, Simon. You really ought to. Yes, we should address some of those questions. We should
0: definitely do that. Shall we? uh,
2: Before I have to go. Yes, I'm okay for a while.
0: Okay. Well, let's uh, let's go to our Facebook group. And we should be able to find the question. Um, have you got that open at the moment, Andrew?
2: Uh, yeah, yes.
0: That's good because you're gonna the
2: one it. from Dan Tree.
0: That's it, yeah. Because
2: these aren't the people. Maybe sent you emails as well, but Dan said, "Can we talk a bit about macro work?" Um, I'll correct his grammar. Are there lenses specific to that? Is there lenses specific to that? Are there lenses specific to that? Or specific focal lengths that will work better? How extended am I looking at for my bellows? Will certain lenses make it so the bellows is not extended so far? I'm working with 4 by 5 So I think he's saying he's touching on – he's probably a good place to start, Sandeha, would be around definition of macro, you know, when we talk about one-to-one and then bellows extensions – relating that to different lenses and so on and so forth. Anyway, I'll leave you to...
1: It's an interesting area and uh, I was probably late in the day discovering or reading somewhere that it's only close up until you get to -to one-to-one. And Mm -hmm. one-to-one, of course, is is neat on a 4 by 5 negative because you can quickly see if your subject in real life is the same size as the image on the negative if it's the same size you've you've achieved one-to-one magnification once you go beyond that one and a half to one two to one etc you are into macro photography until at some point you're using a microscope and is uh, it's micro photography i suppose but macro that interests most photographers is going to be close up tabletop work, if you will, to make something appear as large as you can. So in the image that I took the other day, uh, it was one-to-one. This was with the uh, the Surveyor 3 rail camera. And I used a 170 lens, and I doubled the focal length to 340, And I took my shot. And the reason I made that choice, because I do have several lenses possible, uh, the reason I took that choice is simply that uh, my rail is 500 millimeters. So the most I could achieve with that particular lens was to get one and a half times magnification by going three times the focal length. Uh, But that would have been actually 510 millimeters, which I don't quite have. So anyway, I got to -to one-to-one with that lens. So anybody looking at this question should first consider, well, what is my maximum rail length? And then pick a lens that is appropriate for that length, given that you might want to magnify twice, three times or more.
2: So in order to get one to one with a 150 millimeter lens on four by five yeah, how far do I have to move my bellows out?
1: To 300 millimeters.
2: Yeah, which is the maximum I can do on my Toyo. So,
1: Right. So mm-hmm. what you could use is a shorter lens. Mm-hmm. If you had a 90 with a large enough image circle, at least, you could move your 90 in multiples of 90 along your rail. So you could get three focal lengths with your rail, I think, and that would give you one and a half times to one magnification. So your, let, let's say you've got a, a toy or something, a little toy Lego piece. Um, it would appear one and a half times larger on your negative than it actually is when you hold the piece in your hand.
2: Yeah, pretty diddy on a 4x5 bit of film. So I might be better using 35mm then, because then I can really fill the frame, couldn't I?
1: And in many ways, that's true, yes.
0: And I was going to say, now this this brings us on to what I've been up to in the last uh, week, week or so, um, because I've been having a go at macro photography using my... Sinar camera although strictly speaking it's not not large format photography because what I was doing is uh, I was trying to work out how to use this thing that I'd picked up <laughs> and uh, and it was a Hasselblad to Sinar uh, adapter made by Sinar and uh, I bought it at the time at a, a camera fair and I was I was looking at it and I couldn't quite work out what I was actually be meaning to do with this thing because at first I thought it was a, some kind of adapter that you could put a Hasselblad lens onto the front of uh, um, the uh, my rail camera. Um, not entirely sure why I'd want to do that, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and then I, was, I looked at it a little bit more and, it, and I realized, no, this is to actually put the camera on the back of the, uh, of, of a Cynar camera and use a Hasselblad as, a, as, as effectively the taking camera. And I was looking at it and I was thinking, I'm, I wasn't sure how this could possibly work because the, 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 there was already an extension um, out of the back of this, this board to, to mount the Hasselblad onto. And therefore, the film plane itself was going to be much further back than the normal position would be for, on a large format camera um because the uh the length this lens board where the adapter is sitting is the plane of focus so putting the Hasselblad on there you're taking the um you're effectively putting a i don't know probably around about a, a 10 centimeter extension on so uh so it was impossible to get a normal uh infinity focus in a in a in a semi sensible position and i've I worked out that you've virtually got to put the two standards together before you can actually get an infinity focus so i think well what what use is this and I, I, I put a picture up in our facebook group and eventually the the answer was dawned on me after being told several times uh, that it's effectively a macro setup Um, which which it is so I thought okay well let's 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 give this a go and I did something uh, in in my house just to take a photograph of a small flower Um, and I did that with a a digital camera because I can if I can adapt a Hasselblad camera then I can also attach my Sony in in the same way using a series of of adapters and uh, I managed to actually get some very usable um, very detailed close-up shots of a tiny flower um and on, on this plant that looked really bedraggled and i was quite shocked actually how much beauty there was actually there on this rather um this this this, this plant that had, had struggled in the conservatory and in the, in the heat that was that was in there so i've managed to uh, do proof of concept and then last night at our um at the six towns darkroom club uh, that that we have i was able to use the studio and uh studio lights and with a view that okay let's let's actually try and take a photograph up using the Hasselblad rather than using my Sony and got the 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 setup that I I needed. Um and then I tried uh my hundred and fifty mil lens and I've also got a ninety mil superangulon and I felt that I couldn't I found that I couldn't actually get close enough or I couldn't get enough magnification out of the hundred and fifty millimeter lens which Goes to the part where Sunday was talking about the the extension because the extension on the signar I've not actually measured it uh, but it's not it's it's not it's not a huge extension at all from from at it, it, its maximum level so I realised that I needed to put a shorter lens on it. Uh, because it, it's sort of it, it sounds counter counterproductive uh, counterintuitive. Sorry, that a shorter lens will actually give you more magnification. But as again as Sande has pointed out, there that's exactly what happens. Which you don't need as much extension to get uh, a similar level of magnification. So I I did that. I put it. Uh, I put the, the 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 ninety mil on. I attached the Hasselblad to it, and I also put next a fifty five mm extension. Onto the Hasselblad to get the level of uh, magnification I was after, and the the subject matter was a um, a Voigtlander uh, Vitomatic two um, camera from the fifties or so, and I could fill the frame with the with the Hasselblad. Um, I could fill the frame with the selenium cell. Um, virtually the entire frame, more or less, was was filled with this cell, um, and I used. Uh, the Sony camera, as a almost as a spot meter, uh, because the full frame sensor is that much smaller than uh, certainly than four by five, but it's also a fair bit smaller than six by six or the fifty six millimeter square. Of, of the hasselblad, but that enabled me to get over a pretty big problem way and and sandeo i 'm hoping that you 're going to be able to answer this how you would do this without the method i 've used, but I was able by attaching the sony i was I was able to do through the lens metering uh, of my subjects i don 't know if it 's worked yet because i 've not developed the photo, but i don 't see any reason why it wouldn 't but one of the issues that I had was that because the magnification was so high um, getting enough light onto the subject to get a reasonable shutter speed was, was quite difficult. And the, 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 issue that I had with shutter speed was based upon the, the type of shutter that I was using with the super angular, which is a Prontor sh- Prontor shutter. And uh, to activate that, I didn't want to click it. I needed to use the cable release, but it's got a really stiff action um, to actually enable the shutter to work. So the, I was, the, the magnification was such that any kind of movement uh, would show in in the image so uh, I had to increase the amount of light and I'll share photographs of the rig that we used, but it had three studio lights at really close distance um, shining at full brightness on the subject just to get a photograph that I could actually take at 1 of a second at f11 so uh, but I'll be, be at a bit of a loss have worked out how to have got to that that shutter speed in those conditions um, without that uh, through the lens metering. So, Sandeo, I'm hoping that you can help with how the calculation works with that extension.
1: Only a little bit, but uh, what you've just described does highlight uh, possibly the first part of the answer to the person who left the question. I'm sorry, I, I don't recall his name offhand, but when you're setting up, a macro uh, rig, the things you've got to consider are the length of the rail that you've got, the magnification that you want, the stability of your camera and the nature of the lighting. Because one little issue comes up straight away. If you're using a very wide angle lens and multiplying several times its length along your rail, you are going to end up with your lens quite close to the subject. And it depends what your subject is, uh, whether you want to use a short lens or use a longer lens that necessarily you have to move your camera further away. So when you consider, are you working with hot lights? Have you got control over the direction of your lighting? All of these variables, you can't reduce the theory. You've got to look at the practicality and comfort of working. The the actual exposure, well, that's a separate issue. And using a digital camera within the system, I'm sure it must be very, very helpful. Um, Otherwise, you have to make the bellows extension Calculations, or, or rather, look at the graph because it, you know, all of this information is out there. There is a graph showing exactly how much exposure compensation you need for every additional focal length introduced by your bellows extension.
2: I think there are some rule of thumb, Simon, as well. Ansel Adams, in his book The Camera, gives the calculation for bellows factor extension, but you'll find that widely published. Yes. But uh, I think probably adding half a stop for every half a stop to a stop for every half once you go past the um, you know, 100 if it's 150 mil lens, once you go past that sort of 150 extension for every then uh, focal length you add on, add half a stop, something like that. I think probably if you added a stop, it wouldn't make much difference. But that's basically rule of thumb. I think how it works out. Well, there there are apps as well. Um, which there are, is, yes, know, which there's is... one or two. I I did have one somewhere, but you know, I but think the... most people once you've done it a few times, you get a feel for it. I think Simon. Yeah,
0: well, that that was that led us to a. I mean, we were actually going to calculate this u- using the app, but we then realised that we didn't have a ruler. <laughs> So so, so that was that. That that pretty much uh, shot things down. And we also there was a little bit of doubt. I was just going to say there was a little bit of doubt over exactly where we were going to be measuring from as well, because uh, obviously the the Hasselblad sits further back from where it would normally sit on the on the Mm. on the camera. So does it? Is it measured from the film plane? Is it measured from the mount of the 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 camera? Film plane, I think. On the
1: film plane,
0: yes. Yeah, that's that's that seemed to make more sense anyway.
2: I carry, um, out of a Christmas cracker, one year, I, I got a little, you know, like a, a full-size workman's steel tape measure, I got a little diddy one in a cracker, it's the most useful thing I've ever had, because it does, it's, it extends out to, I don't know, a metre or something, and it's a tiny little thing, and I carry mm. it in my camera bag for to whip out and measure my bellows <laughs> in the field. That's very good. That's what, you should, you should look for a higher quality... Uh, Source of Christmas cracker, Simon. And you'll be sorted. Yeah, to, to measure my extension. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: the um the, but the, the the other measurement. I've just realised there's there's two, there's two parts to this conundrum about where you measure. And the first part is the film plane, so that that makes a huge amount of sense. Um, and but how about the at the other end? Are you measuring to to the front of the standard or the, the front of the lens? I mean, that's, that's that that was the other bit that I couldn't really work out.
1: Unfortunately, there is a slight problem uh, of n- knowing how it's been calculated for that lens design. I, I think it's called the node point, uh, which is a floating mm. point, which may be just in front of the rear element or just behind the front element, uh, depending what the groups are of the elements in that lens. So the common... Um, and most practical thing measurement point to use is where the shutter leaves are yeah, because that is between the lenses. So you measure from your film plane to the shutter leaves themselves. And obviously within a centimeter, one way or another, it's not going to make a huge difference. Yeah.
2: With a a leaf type design, you know, where you've got the effectively the, the rays coming to a point and, I want to call it the nodal point. I'm not sure if that's the correct point, but with the leaf shutter design, you've got your shutter aperture blades effectively in that position, haven't you, as opposed to other designs where the le- where the shutter might be, you know, um, I yeah.
1: should, I should actually not quite, quite the, at that point. should actually have said the shutter leaves, not the, the, I should have said, sorry, I'll start again. I should actually have said the aperture leaves, sure leaves. not the shutter yeah. leaves, yeah. but it's a millimeter yeah. difference.
2: There we go. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on to another question? Or Yeah, yeah. I think I think we've 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 done that well. So thank I, you, Dan Tree was the name you were right.
1: Dan well I hope that um insofar as our discussion may or may not have been helpful, I hope Dan comes back to the uh large format photography podcast Facebook page and leaves a comment or asks further questions.
2: Well done, Sunday. You can come on again.
1: Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, what
2: about I, this question from August from Monty? I was going to say look, we must do the Monty question. It's got to be worth it after all this, uh, all these trails we've given it. I, 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 exactly. So, uh, do you want to do you want to go ahead on that one? Mm. I, I, Although it is written to you. Yeah, no, I know. Okay, so I think I think um, yeah, this is in two parts. I think so, Monty. Says this. What's Monty's last name? I don't know what Monty's last name is. Uh, Anyway, it doesn't matter for the moment. Hi, Simon. I've been listening to the podcast, but I've given up now because you've taken so long to read my email. And hear that you. It's Monty Craig, by the way. Monty Craig. Oh, yes. And hear that you are the resident lens expert. See, if you're that much of an expert, you should have answered this way before now. <laughs> I'm, not have, large, I'm not
0: a large format lens expert. That's I, where the problem, that's where everything falls okay. down. All
2: right. I have waded through a ton of online info about lenses. And it seems opinions are all over the place. So I am approaching you in an effort to find some solid information. I am starting to build my 4x5 kit. And just this weekend... I picked up a Schneider Apo Symar 150mm lens. Very nice. I felt that was a reasonable place to start. I think so, Monty. And will get my film legs back under me before buying another lens. I'm interested short term, rather immediate term, on doing head and shoulder portraits in black and white. I've also been looking at the Schneider Apo Simar 2.10 lens. And to round out my kit, a 90mm of some sort. They're, they're, they're the three lenses I have. Not those makes, but they're the three focal lengths. This is where things get a bit dicey. Am I looking at Super Superangulons, Nikon SW, or perhaps a Fuji SWD? Or is there some other lenses that will serve me just as well doing black and white and colour landscape work? Hmm. Thanks for your time, and I hope to hear from you either on here or on the podcast. Thanks, Monty. Well, it's one way to keep Monty listening all these months Yeah. taking so long. So I think, I guess to sum up, he's... He's looking at black and white portraits and he's got himself a inverted commas standard lens. Uh, he wants to do landscapes as well and he's mentioned some other makes. Is he getting his knickers in a twist about different types of lenses? I Should he be worrying? He what do you think? What do you I'm think?
1: Concerned Because they're all highly competitive in terms of producing an optimal lens for a market at a given price. So he should consider his price point hmm. and then consider what is available to him um, without worrying too much about the letters after the name.
2: Okay. Well, I don't even know what a Grandagon is anyway, so there you go.
0: I think, that's, I I think it's a Rodenstock uh, lens, I think.
2: Oh, is it?
1: Yeah. Is it? Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this, this question earlier and, and I remembered my own experience. I as, I, as I mentioned before, I picked up a classic 135 Tessa, and I was really pleased with it. But when I first built the player, I wanted another lens and I wanted a good modern lens in a good modern shutter. And I got in touch with KEH. I had to look at KEH's listings because everybody was recommending them. And I picked up a Rodenstock Kaltar. 210 for a very good price. I mean, I forget exactly what it was. It was a wonderful lens. Some of my best known shots were taken with that lens and it served for landscape, for portrait, for a wide range of things. And the interesting thing is it's actually a triplet. It's not um, a highly uh, over engineered uh, lens of multiple formats. It's it's a it's quite a simple lens, it's a triplet, but it was very, very sharp and very, very good. The only thing is that when it comes to so like you know, I got my money's worth out of out of that lens, it was very good. When it comes to head and shoulders portraits that he mentions, it's not really long enough. That was 210, 6.8. Not really long enough. And if he's looking at other people's head and shoulder portraits, for comparison, he'd probably find that they would be using 300 millimeter lenses.
2: Okay, popular. let me let me let me stop you there because this kind of yeah. goes back to a bit about perspective and moving the camera. And yes. so, with my with his 150 millimeter lens, it's perfectly possible to take a head and shoulder portrait. You just move closer. Yes. Don't you? But yes. What are the dangers? Or, well, not dangers. I mean, you might be happy with that. Um, many folks are, um, but how does the the image change onto when it's when it's f- when it's recorded on film, as opposed to standing back from the same position and putting a a short telephoto lens on, say a two ten? Are things becoming unnaturally distorted? That's probably what I'm asking.
1: Uh, could could they be by it- moving closer? If you want the optimal lens, you have to look at your lens tables to see what is the large format equivalent of an eighty-five. Uh, because
2: yeah, well that's round about the two ten, I think, isn't it? Yeah, guess? yeah, yeah.
1: Is it not a bit longer? Hmm. It's it's it
2: is it is it's well, it's a little bit
0: long. Well, two, I suppose it's uh, uh, two hundred and fifty-five, isn't it? To be
2: re- not, a as a more specific, but it's close. Three factor of three roughly yeah.
1: isn't
2: it? Yeah. yeah so so 240 might be closer to that it's in in regularly in in readily available large format lens sizes 240 is probably the longest you can go without going up to the copal one size hole or maybe even 240 does force you up to the copal one anyway the lenses start getting bigger don't they effectively they do, yeah copal zero certainly on my 210 it's a copal zero hole 240 um, can't remember whether that then leaps up to one or not but well, the, well, point, I, the point i was trying to tease out of you sunday here really is yeah. you know we talk about why do we talk about having portrait lenses i guess that's probably the
1: because if you if you look at some of the spreads that uh i, I mentioned in our messaging the comparisons have been done on 35 mil with wide angle for portrait up to 135 for portrait and the face appears differently Hmm. and 85 is considered 35 mil the optimal lens um
2: to render a face in the right proportions without making your nose look big or something
1: at at fullish frame head and shoulders Uh, if you if you use a wide angle lens to, to fill your frame you've got to move much closer and while that may be uncomfortable for the sitter, it also gives a sort of spreading of the face.
2: Mm.
1: And the opposite is true for uh, a much longer lens. But I just checked on my uh, lens comparison chart. And for 85 millimeter in 35 mil, if you take that to 4.5, it's actually 301 300 oh, millimeter. It is, yeah. right. Okay. So uh, if he wants to be an average distance from the sitter and have a full head and shoulders portrait on 4x5, he would really need to be looking at a 300-millimeter lens. And to get a fast one is quite pricey. Hmm. So... Yeah, the meniscus
2: compromise. meniscus lenses and go all arty that's the thing isn't it that's the way
1: the compromise is to use a shorter lens because it's cheaper but mm. it is a compromise and photography uh, photographers have to make do with compromises sometimes the
2: thing is with a 300 if you get yourself one you've yeah. then got an excuse to buy an 8x10 camera because you have a nice <laughs> normal <laughs> angle of view lens
1: <laughs> this is true yeah.
0: um i've just just got something to to add, add to this um and I think Sunday's advice earlier on was made a huge amount of sense. And that's uh, the yeah, relatively modern lenses in whichever focal length are going to going to deliver a, a good result. It's a, it's a, it's as simple as that. So it, it's mm. you're going to start spending more money when you start looking at uh, faster speeds. That's that's usually the the case because modern lenses just do a do a good job. Yeah. And uh, and the I mean I recently bought a. Uh, super Angulon, um 90 mil 5.6 and i wanted that particular lens because i wanted to have my ground glass to be as bright as i possibly could get it yes. um not because i necessarily want to shoot at 5.6 i just wanted a, a bright um a bright uh viewfinder yeah
1: um
0: but and i i paid paid more for that privilege um things get interesting at, at the longer end um and and also this is this is where you sort of also varying away from getting a a, a crisp, um, well corrected image uh, across across the frame, or whether or not you actually want to do something that, as as uh, Andrew was saying there, a little bit arty, and, you know, and that's why he mentioned the uh, meniscus lens. But there's a there's a set of lenses just like in in uh, thirty five millimeter terms they you know you, you would you would buy certain lenses and then the price would go up when you st- when you hit the portrait lenses which were you know traditionally somewhere between eighty five millimeter and uh, one hundred and thirty five yeah. and although the, the 135s are generally cheap unless you' get a, a particularly fast one but certainly the eighty five to 100 millimeter lenses that are quite fast yeah you know, they're, they're wide aperture they were a lot more expensive and they also have a different quality to them as well because most of the older designs were designed to be slightly softer to give a, a more yeah flattering look rather than highlighting every single pimple and uh wrinkle and, and and so on
1: that's true and
0: but the the other uh class of lens on the on, on the on the fast on the at the portrait end which is something i'm particularly interested in getting hold of one but like all things they're they're more expensive and that's the the heliar or heliar uh design lens uh, which is a large, I think it's it's a it's a variation of the, of the Tessar, but they, they do tend to give you that that more of a, a soft focus or more characterful uh, look to the images than you would do with a, a, a straightforward,
2: um, say, 300mm. Can't you just focus. get one with a bit of fungus in it?
0: <laughs> yeah, or the Vaseline on the, yeah, you put a filter on there and stick some hmm. Vaseline on the front of it. Okay. Or
2: when you go in the darkroom, um, get some tissue paper, lay it over your print, yeah. and you get beautiful, Results. There you go. Yeah, that's my contribution.
0: Well, no. well, yeah, I think it's. it's, it's it- it's all, it's all relevant because at the end of the day, this is, this is all about spending money and it's yeah. great if you can go out there and actually buy exactly the right lens that that, that you want, which, you know, I've, I'm, I'm very guilty of doing that in, in 35 millimeter terms with old, old lenses because they're relatively cheap. But mm. when you start to look at some of the, you know, the really interesting and quirky uh, and sought after uh, lenses on large format, the price ra- ramps up rapidly.
1: A 19th century Petzval lens will set you back a good amount of money. But uh, just just an interesting point, which which of recent experience I could throw in here. Uh, The other week I had my portrait taken by a collodion tintype. Yes. Uh, artist. Uh, Very gambling. good, it is too.
2: You're looking suitably manic, I have to say.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, the expression is a construct based on some sculpture from the 18th century, but never mind that for the moment. He was using, I think it was an intrepid camera for his uh, wet plate collodions, and he had, I think, a Fujinon 210 lens. Now, your basic Fujinon 210. We had a huge power bank, um, the largest balloon flash of light I've ever seen in my life, uh, which was very close to my face. And indeed, it was a two ten lens and two ten lens, and it was a full face portrait on four by five approximately. And the lens was inches from my nose. You have to I'm, bring the lens inches from my nose. I'm to
2: staring stand. at it. I've got it filling my big screen, and it's unnerving, I have to say. <laughs> Carry on.
1: But, you know, the, the 210 is fine for a portrait, head only, if you're prepared to take the lens right up so close to your subject. And that's what he had to do.
2: Yeah. So I, I, if you... Click on Sandeja's profile picture, and I'm looking at... I don't know how big my monitor is, but it's pretty big. It covers up half my desk. And I'm I'm now staring at what's bigger than life-size head of uh, Sandeja looking at me with these pin-sharp eyes with um, interesting specular highlights in. It looks like probably a flash brolly, but I'm not sure.
1: It is. It's a huge, huge flash brolly. And
2: And, uh, the whiskers are some whiskers in sharp relief and some... uh, uh, skin and eye, eyebrow, eyelids, and things, and your nose, which is pretty much touching the lens, is out of focus. As are your ears.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. Absolutely wonderful. So, what's the, Sorry, you you referred to this um, image influenced by by what? Something in the oh,
1: past. Um, there was a, a, a mad German-Austrian sculptor called Meschersmit. I think Franz Meschersmit and uh, i was, i was always impressed with it, with the sculpture he did because he worked on um extreme expressions now to work on extreme expressions in marble and bronze is quite an achievement but i wanted to replicate one of his expressions in a portrait so it was a good opportunity meeting with with gareth to to do this and he was he was keen to do it
0: Excellent. Well, that's a great picture. I just got one one question about that picture. And how how long was the exposure?
1: Oh, it was a uh, fraction of a second. I mean, it may have been one hundredth of a second. I'm not sure.
0: Right, and, that, and the that
1: lighting would... was incredibly powerful.
0: I, exactly. That that would explain it because I mean, usually these these photos are, are taken over a period of seconds, aren't they? When the uh, wet plate collodion.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. But a very powerful lighting obviates the need for that
2: emails i'm i'm conscious of the yeah. time Simon, well, but well, we we, ha- you have had some emails sent in haven't you uh
0: well yes uh, and uh well we have another one by monty don't we do we we do hmm.
2: well we- there was a sort of second part to that which i wasn't going to read out because i didn't really ask a question
1: uh- light meters uh, yeah.
2: where, uh, no, where it says thanks, Simon, that bit is that another email? No, no
0: it's a completely different email. But oh, uh, I think what we've done is uh, those. Uh. It was a it was a conversation we were having on on Facebook Messenger, but I think we've answered pretty much the uh, the, the the question with the first part there. Um, but so, I've uh, forwarded on one with the title of uh, which came by email. Uh, it's it called my metering dilemma.
2: Hmm.
0: Have you? <laughs> honestly two hours ago at 10 past 10 today okay and he came to you via the large format photography podcast yeah yeah
2: no, i've got one hi simon i've been listening to the podcast and then there's another bit where there's one last thought while i'm not wealthy that but well, that's not what you're trying no, no. to is it? no not not at all it's a completely separate team. and then it's thanks simon okay what's this one and then no you've sent me the same thing twice
0: No, well, I've got it it down here, saying that you've had it, but I've just sent it again anyway, so uh, you should have it. This is great audio, isn't it? Yeah. So it's winging this way now.
2: I know you don't like reading emails, but for the sake of um, of the podcast, you might. Oh, there you go. Okay, I've got it now. My metering dilemma saved. You've been saved by the bell. Okay, my metering dilemma. You hadn't sent me that one. Anyway. (laughs) I can, Monty. I can I can
0: send you screen captures if you wish. No,
2: no, no. I don't. I still won't believe you. Okay, Monty says this. I have owned and used a Pentax Digital One Degree Spot Meter for years, but sold it sadly. I am now looking for another meter, but I wonder if it would be better to get something newer, like a Sekonic. I understand that the Pentax meter is no longer made. <clears throat> Um, so, if Siconic is still making meters, they would be able to service them if needed. This is why I chose to buy an Intrepid 4x5 over a used Zone 6. Um, in, so, then, so he can get it serviced by Max and his friends, I guess. Simply because there's a place to get it repaired. I know my Zone 6 came with a lifetime guarantee, but that's no good if the people who made it are dead. Uh, unfortunately it was fred picker's company company's lifetime and not my own yeah so i use pentax or siconic which would you suggest and why well i can answer a bit of that monty because siconics are doing i think they they do a, a very popular spot meter which doubles as a incident meter and a reflected light meter and a flash meter i think it's a 758 there's also the 558 which is a bit cheaper they're readily available uh, personally i have a Pentax spot meter no, not not pentax is it, um, Minolta. Is it Who makes it I no, don't know. Spot Minolta. yeah Minolta, spot meter f which, I is very, which is very nice i can I can I can establish the brightness range of a scene by moving it around and it tells me in stops, yeah. I can record several um, places at once and average them out. I can take a scene and press a button that says shadow and it places it places the tone or the exposure on zone three, roughly. So Minolta spot meter F, I'd recommend. Now, where, if it packed up, could I get it fixed? Probably not.
1: Probably not. And I'd add mm. one more, more more point to that. I imagine, Andrew, you've never dropped your Minolta spot meter onto concrete.
2: No, I've dropped plenty of things, <laughs> but <Yeah>. not this.
1: <laughs> I, I did drop mine, and there was forever afterwards a little rattle inside the uh. meter. But the thing is, <laughs> meters can go wrong, and if you buy something that's in current make, uh, a, a well-known brand like the Siconic, yeah, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to do the job.
2: But on the other hand, you're probably paying. I mean, new they must be six, seven hundred quid, Oof. probably. Um, secondhand, um, second hand, uh, sec- second hand, they go for a good few hundred. Yeah, the the most recent ones do whereas you can pick up a spot meter f i didn't pay anywhere near that i forget what i paid but it wasn't anywhere near that Mm. just don't drop it
1: yes and if you buy a second hand one you have to get a written guarantee that it was never dropped by anyone
2: (laughs) well i didn't think to do that but anyway it seems fine Mm. simon have you got any thoughts on that
0: um just just brief ones because i also know that uh you you we need to bring the podcast to an end soon, because your your time is limited on the on the show now um, but um, very briefly i 've got a couple of spot meters, uh, one of which is um, a, a pentax one, uh, which i 'm not one hundred percent sure about whether I like it or not because that uses a digital display and then it 's got a couple of lights on it, which sort of i haven 't quite worked out, but I assume that 's giving you degrees of um, accuracy in, in terms of how close it is to the to the EV reading that it's given you. Um, but I, I, I'm quite taken with the Soligor. gore. Uh, it's a, it's a v Mark two uh, spot meter, which is a, uh, it, it gives you a needle. And so, you know, exactly mm. where it is on the scale. And also you can calibrate it just with a screwdriver. Uh Yeah.
2: one of the um one of the the pentax was the early ones pentax fives were they um is that what they were called sunday here they were just a needle weren't they i think the pentax
1: no to be honest i don't know
2: and also the the first spot meter i had years ago and i sold it was a a a capital spot meter and i bought that from a camera company in birmingham for about 100 pounds new and it was a simple needle which you could calibrate with a screw you I know, think w- when it was at rest you just had to make sure the needle was over the little bar at the end and you could turn a screw. Well, the they, thing yeah, to
1: check with old spot meters is what exactly is the size of that spot um because no oh, that
2: was one that was 1 degree
1: or the Minolta rather the Minolta was a square centimeter and the size of the area it's it reads does vary so that's that's worth Finding out the original spec before hmm. you buy something I think that's
0: uh meter that you just described there I think that's exactly the same as the Soligo one because it's it's you can Probably find just it it's branded badged, was not it there's ex- ex- exactly there's quite a few out there and just one other thing about uh, spot meters especially the older ones is you just you and the and I think this certainly includes the older pentax spot meters is that some of them are are, are designed to be used with mercury batteries it's a yeah. different voltage. Yeah. Um, and that yeah, my, can be problematic. Makes, um, two, one double A battery. Yeah. So I, I think that's probably the biggest single tip I would say is uh, just, just check how you're going to power the thing um if you mm. are looking at a, at an older spot meter make sure that you know you, you you can still get the batteries for it, because certainly on on many cameras i don't know if this applies specifically with the uh these other spot meters but if you if it's something's designed for a mercury cell which is like i think one point three five volts and you're gonna be using a one point five Uh, volt battery in there if the circuitry isn't set up to compensate it you will
2: actually get yeah i mean there there are ways around it that are well covered online but it's it's a bit of a faff, really yeah Yeah, exactly exactly
0: Mm. um right well i i I know that we we really need to start to uh, bring things to a close Mm. um so let's just say thank you uh, to those people who have donated to us since the last show uh, via Coffee, that's ko-fi.com.
2: com, um, and we're on there if you search Classic Lenses. No, not Classic. <laughs> um, well, you can search Classic Lens or Lensless Podcast. We yeah. have a Coffee account as well. Excellent, excellent. They're both both two good places to donate donate to. But in this case, <laughs>
0: um, the large format photography podcast, um, and there's also a link in the uh, in our show notes as well. But sometimes searching for it doesn't always work very well. Um yeah. but uh I just want to say thanks to James Thorpe who has uh regularly um supported us again. So thank yeah, you James. Thank you. thank you James. And we also have um a new do- donation person, donator or whatever. donor um, yeah donor that's the word. I can never get it right. Uh Joshua Wright um okay. and uh thanks, he's Joshua. made a and he's made a comment um uh, saying uh how is it that Simon always always knows to ask the questions in my head? Um, and thank you for a fantastic podcast. Well, I feel really sorry for you, Joshua, were, if we were on the save Wayne <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm asking those, those, those questions that, uh, are helping you there.
1: That's good.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, just to finish things off sandeya um, it's been a fantastic chat.
1: I've enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's worked out well. Um, and, uh, I look forward to listening back over it. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: there, there've been the there've been some areas there that I had no idea we were going to going to go go into those those places and actually before we started the podcast there was a, a, a few conversations where I was saying, well, oh, we've got to stop that and uh, and and cover it back in the show later." Um which which actually, in some respects, we didn't actually talk about that. About, but we were chatting about how the the Parthenon was designed to be looked at in a particular way, and so on. Which were, oh yeah, yeah, all, all, all fascinating things that people aren't going to hear now.
2: <laughs> or you could start another podcast called off cuts or backing paper or something and the yeah. stuff we do off air you know the preamble chat because some of it's really interesting you could just put that out there couldn't you uh,
0: well if the, if that's if that section of the conversation works uh, is a is an extract then i'll I'll, hmm. I'll drop it at the end of the show um, but yeah. i'm not sure if it will but that's a problem with these uh, these chats before the show starts there they can be really interesting parts to it but they can it's very difficult sometimes to actually just like chop out a section and context or or Andrew in your case you've like been saying bad things about other people uh, yeah, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, because I don't listen back to these shows um, <laughs> you, you threaten to put me on an extract swearing the other week i don't I, know if you did that I, or not. yeah that that did made you it you yeah did that, it? that made it into oh, the air takes yeah yeah okay. i did i did bleep you just
0: so that you know just to share <laughs> people's blushes uh,
2: okay maybe i'll listen back to that one yeah
0: um, okay so again um Sandeer, thank you for 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 being a great guest this week
1: well thank you very much and
0: uh, so how can people take a look at the work that you have out there on, on, on the internet and uh, uh, any any websites you want to direct people to?
1: Indeed. Uh, the key thing is just being able to spell my name because it is somewhat unique. Uh, let me spell it out. S-A-N-D-E-H-A, Sandea, um, and Lynch, which is a well-known name of Irish extraction. My website is com. Sandia Lynch is my username on both Facebook and Instagram, and also Flickr. Now, Flickr, a bit of a dumping ground for me. I'll put me everything too. up there. Uh, but it's, it's organized into folders. So if somebody looks at the albums on Flickr, they will see the different cameras I've made over the years and some sample shots from each of those so, so that's the best place to look I mean much of my work is online
0: excellent
2: and uh Andrew how can people keep up with you um most places as warboys snapper I think uh Instagram I have a dedicated pinhole feed called Andrew Bart uh, no I didn't <laughs> warboys snapper <laughs> underscore pinholes and hanging around the large format photography podcast facebook group most days several days several times a day and you can catch me weekly on the lensless podcast with cory cannon excellent and uh
0: if you want to get in touch with the show uh yes the facebook group is there but you can if you want to get uh, an email read out uh, eventually by me, um, <laughs> by Andrew. Um, just send an email to large format photography podcast. Sorry, it's so, so long there uh, at gmail.com. So that's large format photography podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to find out the other things that I do, I do a podcast as well weekly called the Classic Lenses Podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I've got an eBay shop and there's links to all the places that we actually are in our show notes, which are on the in our in the Facebook group actually. So um and yeah, there's a there's a link in there about that's a point. We could we need to find a way of actually letting people link to where we are on Podbean. So if you do a search on Podbean, uh, for classic lenses podcast you'll actually see the show notes there as well so if you can't get to see the show notes sorry
2: on... why classic lenses podcast did i say classic lenses podcast
0: okay so... yeah. <laughs> large format. well they're both on pod
2: pod they're large format i I'd actually podcast. stopped listening to you then until i heard you say classic lenses podcast <laughs>
0: i do the same when you talk about the lensless <laughs> but uh but there you go um
1: cool. it... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I've been taking pinhole shots lately, so you know I'm 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 warming to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so if you if you do a search on Podbean, if you search for Podbean, and then you can you can do then another search for large format photography podcast, and you'll see the show notes. Um, if you don't want to go anywhere near Facebook, so right, that that's it. Um, that's the end of the show. We're going to be back in a fortnight. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, it'll be great if you can join us again in about two weeks. So goodbye.
2: Bye. Goodbye. So we can talk about that. I don't know whether Simon dares to get on the topic of perspective. Interestingly, I saw somebody posted into... uh, No, it was on Twitter. That's it. And yeah. it was right on this topic and i d- I don't think trouble with Twitter I don't know now how to find it and it showed a painting of a scene somewhere I'm going to say in Italy yeah and then a photograph um, I don't know whether the photograph was taken around the same time or later but there was a ver- the the painter of course is at liberty to play with perspective a little bit Yes, and so the relative the relative positions of people were. It was almost like he'd, co- in photographic terms, it's like he'd combined a twenty-eight mil lens and a fifty mil lens because some oh, things didn't look quite right. But he'd play, he'd played with it as a painter, but with the with the photograph, you're. Uh, it'd be interesting
1: what, you, to see that. I mean, if you.
2: Yeah, if I'm going to try and find it now,
1: <laughs> and you can scroll back through all your lights. Ah, oh, yeah, know, that's the problem,
2: it. isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm back, um, by the way.
1: All right.
0: Um, um, that's that's a point. The perspective thing. Um, I wasn't actually specifically going to bring it up, but if you want to bring it up, if either of you want to talk about that,
2: then. Um, well, there was a there was a tweet was that a tweet that was very relevant. Um, nothing to do with. It was almost serendipitous to what we've been talking about. Oh, and right. Stig, Stig um, chirped up when he saw it. And I nearly said, "Oh, we're going to probably be talking about this," but I didn't comment on it in the end. Yeah, Uh, it came yesterday. I'm just going as as you're talking, uh, introducing. I'm just going to be flicking back through my Twitter and see if I can see if I can find it. But it was it was comparing a painting of a scene with a photograph, and there was a very the 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 painter had clearly played with the relative positions of objects. You know, as far as the viewer is concerned, the article—the article I've been reading this morning in that amateur photographer's handbook also talks about, you know, it's also perspective is going to apparent perspective because once you've committed a three D image onto a print, that's fixed. You can't do anything about it. But apparent perspective is going to be affected by the viewing distance to the print and how you view it. Mm -hmm. And each each enlargement has an optimum. Uh, viewing distance which yeah. I think relates to something like two and a half times the distance of the vertical of the print that's that's a good uh, and then you get a inverted commas normal perspective but if mm-hmm. you change your or normal apparent perspective but you can by where you stand will affect perspective and of course that feeds into there are some paintings in old houses and when you look at them on uh, if you look at them at ground level uh, for instance the um, Oh, yes. if it's a picture of a figure they may be got, I can't remember which way around it it's probably little stubby legs but that's mm. because they've been, they're have been. they designed to be viewed looking up at them and when when, away, yeah. up, when when they look up their legs look normal but if you, if you go and, if you go and look at them they look like they're deformed <laughs> this,
1: this was probably only understood from about 1400 onwards and it's evident in sculpture and in mural frescoes and ceiling paintings and so on But it has also been said that this was understood by the ancient Greeks when they built the Parthenon and it's evident in the architectural appearance of the Parthenon that uh, as you look up at something, you don't want it to be looking distorted. Well I haven't read in detail on those but uh well, then, we, can we, we for a long time I think
0: this is this is this is sounding like a very fascinating a, a better conversation than I thought it was going to be it, uh, <laughs> so I think let's 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 park it and let's 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 have have that because um, All right. um and and hopefully we can cover those things that you just started to talk about there because
2: that sounded really interesting um okay so. and we've and we've got a very erudite guest on as well which is uh, Always helps. help <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't does make
0: a difference when it's no, not me it johnny and uh, and perry talking about it anyway on the classic lenses um okay <clears throat> so let's 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 get going uh, time is 23 minutes into this recording <laughs> hello and welcome to episode 14 of the oh, no no not the classic lenses (laughs) podcast
2: okay start again